Welcome to the Samuel Andreev podcast. To support this podcast, please visit the donation page of Samuel's website or his Patreon page. There are links in the description. Samuel's Twitter is at Samuel Andreev. So my guest today is the very distinguished French composer, organist, and conservatoire professor Thomas Lacotte. Thank you very much, Thomas, for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you, Samuel. It's a great pleasure. There's a lot of things I'd like to ask you about, but one of the things that I thought we could talk about is your sort of double activity, since you are a composer, but you're also a very distinguished organist, and you are, in fact, the uh, titular organist of the uh, Sainte Trinité in Paris. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about the relationship between the work that you do as an organist and your work as a composer. Well, it's a, it's a huge question. I've a strange history with composition and organ because uh, when I start composing, I didn't want to compose for the organ, especially because, uh, well, on the organ, I was improvising and maybe it was enough for me. And so composition was a way to uh, get to know other musicians and uh, to enlarge my musical um, landscape, I could say. Uh, so my first steps uh, in composition were not at all about the organ. But uh, I can say 15 years ago, for the first time, a friend of mine, an organist, asked me to write a piece for him. And I can say that in this process, I maybe found something, and this piece, in fact, became my, I can say, my obvious one. I, I just found that when I tried to compose for the organ, without thinking of me playing this piece, uh, well, I decided, or, or I tried to invent my own organ sound, my own sound on the organ, and I could begin a process that was a sort of research from the instrument that led me somewhere I didn't imagine before, I didn't expect. And uh, I had the sensation that, well, it was a piece I could present as my music, and it was maybe the first real step into uh, an own artistic path, I could say. And so this piece still exists. Uh, It has been published, and, uh, well, it's supposed to be my opus one. And then composing from the organ or at the organ began to be an activity so that exploring from the organ led me to invent my music. Uh, I can say now, of course, all my music is not for the organ or from the organ, but uh, it is still uh, a source where I found something and where maybe I realized progressively that I was not so isolated that I imagined at the beginning. Uh, in fact, I maybe discovered years after years that I was maybe more um, close. I was closer to my contemporaries uh, at the organ that I thought that, in fact, maybe I was answering the same questions, but in different ways because from a different source. This is maybe the first step of the answer to your question. Right, okay. Well, this is interesting. So it is, despite the fact that you are an organist, the, the first piece that you wrote for the instrument was in fact written for somebody else. So how how did that change your approach, I wonder? Because, I mean, maybe you would have written the piece differently had you known that you would be playing it yourself. 
Mm. I can still say that, in fact, I, I don't play much of my organ music and I sometimes don't like to do this. Uh, and so other pieces also were uh, uh, mostly intended for other people or for end pieces so that I could play with other people. Um, so, yes, maybe it, it helped me to explore without uh, linking the two activities or maybe also it helped me at a time to divide myself um, I can say I had questions about playing the organ, but uh, I didn't want to mix all the questions uh, together. And it's also maybe a way so that I could explore about how to write for the organ in a sort of, um, uh, um, uh, not in time, I can say. Uh, I mean, I could invent gestures, of course, at the keyboard, but uh, sort of uh, freezing them see, so that I could notate them without thinking of uh, playing them all the way through, but inventing a sort of laboratory of gestures and someone else could um, invent how to make them uh, as a complete gesture on playing all the piece all the way through. Uh, in fact, it's a, it was a sort of a slow process of inventing very tiny details, uh, but um, in a sort of uh, arrested time, I can say stopped time. I'm, I don't know how to say it in English. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. And uh, yeah, so it, it was maybe the first, uh, yeah, one of the first reasons was the first mean I had. I can say also that, um, of course, this uh, way of, having interactions with other players, and I can name the first one, who is Guillain Leroy, um, was also a great source of uh, wishness um, through that uh, I couldn't imagine, um, you know, inventing my own music to play on my own instrument alone, you know, just this sort of number, uh, we say in French, nombrilisme. That's very hard to, tra to translate. <laughs> yeah. so that uh, it's a way also to to imagine composition. You know, you know, not something you build just for yourself. I, I think I couldn't imagine this thing, uh, and you know, I couldn't also imagine that uh, I had to obey all the decisions I made as a composer when playing it. You know, it's very complicated to say. Well, I decided this. It was maybe months ago or years ago, and. Uh, when you are also an improviser, well, should I transform things? Should I let them as they are on the score? I prefer to, you know, make parts. I'm maybe a player, but I'm also a composer. So, in fact, I, 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 I save decisions together on the score, and then some, so that other people can play them. This is an extract from Thomas Lacotte's The Fifth Hammer which is a piece from his first book of organ etudes, and it's for organ forehands and written in 2012 to 2013.
tell us a bit more, more about the improvisation that you mentioned earlier, because I think this is something that's that's very interesting. There aren't a lot of uh, classical musicians that have improvisation as a primary part of their their practice, and with organists, this is this is something that you have to do. Um, and you have to, in addition to that, I, I assume you also have to be able to improvise in a variety of different styles, depending on the context. So when yeah. you improvise, do you feel like you're improvising as a composer, uh, or are these really instrumental gestures that come from your, or, or can you separate those things? I'm just curious about that. Yes, yes, that's a complex, complex question. Um... I, I improvised and I still improvise a lot. I can say during my teenage, it was really my my um, way to push forward my musical passion, just to improvise. Even you know all the pieces I couldn't play or I couldn't find the score or I couldn't play because it was not organ or piano music. I just uh, went to the piano or the organ and trying to imitate it, improvising, um, and then progressively. Uh, I tried also to have a sort of, uh, of radicality when improvising, even as a student in the conservatoire, so that uh, I could imagine improvisation as something that could not be written, inventing music that could not be written. When I was 22, it was, you know, sort of obsession. So I can say also it was a part of laboratory to explore the organ itself, to find sounds and things like that. When you are taught in improvisation uh, in the organ world, there is a sort of paradox because, in fact, the the main topic I can say uh, the, um, is to imitate written music. I can say even maybe in the most academic sense of the term. In this tradition of the organ, uh, when you make the illusion that you you play a written piece, it's a success. It's it's supposed to be the complete success of the improviser, which is strange. So that it's sort of a real-time composition based on academic generalities about music. And really, I try to find something really different when improvising. I can say that many of the most basic and primary ideas of my organ music came from improvisation, but not this, this sort of real-time improvisation so that you play it in a concert or during mass. But this way of building some together uh, that you can have in the sort of direct interaction with the instrument when you are alone maybe it's night you are at the organ and you can try out to build complexity of sounds uh, without notating them so maybe improvisation is a complex term so that you can have this sort of concert improvisation or liturgical improvisation which is sometimes conventional when you uh, play in different styles and you master different languages and I like to do this but uh, improvisation can be something different maybe much much more linked with experiments and reality uh, directly uh, manipulating the sounds uh, without uh, computer uh, without writing but just building a musical idea with the sounds you have in your hands so what does it mean that that music can't be written at that time, I, I imagine that this sort of rhythmic freedom, this complexity of polyphony, this incarnation in the precision of the timber, so that it could go 
beyond writing, you see, or as a sort of a way to imagine so that writing could go further, you know, a, a way to build a new objectivity or a, a, a new way to imagine what musical writing could do, I can say. So that maybe at that time it, it was also the, the things I couldn't write, you say, or I didn't know how to write at that time. But it was a way not to imagine musical invention as based on the convention of écriture or theory. Right, I see. So you're not, in a way, you're not burdened by the necessity to create a, a grammar or some kind of a um, some kind of a, a consistent language upon which the improvisation can can be based. You don't necessarily need to do that in an improvisation. Uh, yes, that's a part of the thing, but. It's also maybe that you could hope to build a grammar from the sounds themselves, uh -huh. which is a question, of course, which is very general in composition today. Um, and but there is also another question: is that in this sort of improvisation, we are also taught uh, about uh, harmony and pitches uh, in a very uh, uh, precise and, and way, so that uh, controlling uh, the pitch that came out of the organ, it's also a very important question. So that it's not only um, go beyond grammar, but uh, also uh, there is a sense of control in a way, and there is also a sense, which I discovered progressively, of how could I found the grammar from the instrument itself, from the preconception of this complex instrument, and maybe from some characteristics of the sounds. I can say maybe the flesh of the sounds of the organ. Is there a link between the grammar and the flesh of the sound? I presume that you would approach this differently depending on the context in which you were improvising. So you're you the titular organist now of the Église de la Sainte Trinité. And we have to also mention for those listeners who might not realize this, that that is a, that is a very prestigious position. And it also one, you have a very distinguished forebear in that position, who, of course, is Olivier Messiaen, uh, who occupied that position before you. And so if, if you were to improvise in a context like that, would it be expected that you would do something that has a demonstrable connection to the liturgical music that you would be playing normally? Or is there more freedom to explore, to be experimental, given that there's this lineage with Messiaen and 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 Enaji Akim also, who is who is, mm -hmm. who is also uh, an organist at the same place. There is a sort of uh, negotiation, I can say, between uh, different uh, situations. Messian himself, during masses, couldn't, of course, uh, improvise his own music at all time. And we have got some recordings, quite interesting, of him improvising during masses, having a sort of... Uh, a uh, modal style uh, linked with Tournemire, uh, this French uh, organist and composer, uh, much more devocist, uh, a sort of uh, a simple messian that maybe you can listen in, so, in some pieces, uh, like in La Griffe des Bois and um, uh, Des Canyons aux Etoiles, for example. Uh, the, this simple messian, or a sort of uh, youth style, young style. Uh, uh, that he uh, used uh, during masses, and I can say during masses, I also put a bit of sugar maybe in my experiments, mm -hmm. 
so that uh, uh, I'm much maybe uh, much more diatonic, um, much more consonant in a way, uh, much more stable, stable in rhythmic continuity or something like that, um, because uh, well, um, it's also a place of, of service of community, and um, so you 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 be bring together different necessities. Um, well, you won't uh, listen to my musical creation during masses, but it's also a place where you can imagine how to teach uh, the congregation uh, how to listen to different types of music and enlarge their way of listening to, to new music, in fact, I can say. So it's sort of a pedagogical function also. Well, one of the things that I, I find really interesting about the idea of being uh, an organist is that the the performances that you will be given will will take place in a context that ha has a very specific community around it, and that community has specific uh, expectations also about what's going to happen. And there's a, a sort of meaningful social, mm -hmm. uh, what would you say, uh, framework within which the concert is taking place. So you have a very a very specific function, a very specific role to fill. And that seems to be very different than what tends to happen in a lot of contemporary music concerts in which this, the social function is a little bit more abstract in the sense that it's not as defined. And I wonder what the, how that appears to you to, because you're active in those, in those two domains. Well, I, I can say it's, it's quite special when I play during masses it's um, well. I don't. I don't consider myself exactly as the same as when I am a professional musician playing concerts in La Trinité or elsewhere, or being played in concert halls or something like that. Uh, it's another part. Um, so uh, maybe I put a bit of myself, or I let a bit of myself uh, uh, in the changing room. And then entering uh, the tribune uh, for the mass, it's something a bit different. But in this uh, practice of the uh, liturgical service, yes, I'm among the community, and um, I sometimes, well, I I don't decide uh, everything myself about what will be done uh and what style of music i will do and why type of, of type of repertoire or composition i will i will use but um i, I can say it's also a sort of a isolated uh, activity in my musical world um it's uh sometimes i maybe could dream that it could be more fluent so that uh, I, I could uh, do everything I dream of, musically speaking, during masses, but it's not the case. And well, that's okay. Um, I'm also uh, using my musical abilities or skills um, in another function. And I think that this function, of course, is spiritual and liturgical, but as I said before, it's also pedagogical and still artistic. Uh, and it's a strange mixture, quite uh, maybe a bit original, um, but it's also a way, yes, to so that the composer can still think himself uh, addressing people, maybe. I'm, I'm curious also to have your views on the prospect of writing contemporary liturgical music, 
So we know that Messiaen did that, obviously. But um, I'm, I'm very intrigued by this, because if you take something like the Orgelbüchlein of Bach, this is a, a very, very interesting uh, cultural artifact, because it's simultaneously a treatise on composition, it's a pedagogical uh, set of etudes for, for organists, uh, it has a uh, obviously a liturgical and, and theological function, um, so it, it does many, many things at the same time. And all of these different uh, aspects that it has seem to interact with each other in very subtle and, and uh, difficult to separate out ways. And I wonder if you think that something similar could be attempted today in 2020. Well, um, looking from inside, you may be disappointed by my answer. Uh, because first, uh, Messiaen, in fact, didn't write liturgical music, uh, apart from maybe one motet, which is a famous O Sacrum Convivium. But his organ works are not primarily sought for liturgy. And he explained these things also, that um, uh, maybe the Messe de la Pentecôte is uh, built up on liturgical uh, um, um, requirements in a way. But uh, all his other pieces are sort of paraliturgical, para um, and uh, in fact, they in fact it's not uh, even so easy to play them during services themselves. Um, so he, he sought his music uh, independent from liturgy because for him, plenchant was the only liturgical music. Oh, interesting! He wrote this many times. And, well, the situation now is something very difficult because liturgical music is not ancient anymore, but it's replaced by songs and hymns that are sometimes inspired by a sort of pop music which is not the good one and which has uh, totally transformed the repertoire, the common repertoire of liturgical music of Catholic Church and in La Trinité, though, the, the hymns or songs that are uh, sung by the congregation, well, is of very, very low artistic quality, or in fact, has no artistic quality at all. So when Bach could use the choral melodies to write this art music, this treatise of composition, this elaboration of the choral, uh, well, now I've no repertoire that I could use to link these liturgical hymns and my musical wizard. It's just impossible. So this hope you, you, you had when, as, when asking the question, I don't have any hope about this. And my musical creation is outside of liturgy and it's uh, almost totally, maybe apart from some motets, it's totally apart uh, outside the liturgy. So how did this happen historically? I'm interested in this because it seems to me that if you look at the certainly the Baroque period, but uh, but also uh, the entire classical period, you have forms and genres and uh, styles that are modeled after elements taken from uh, popular the, the popular styles of the day to varying extents. And um, so the idea that you could take something like well, I'm coming back to the Augebüchlein, where you have a, a combination of very, very familiar hymn tunes that would have been familiar to everybody in central Germany at the time, 
Uh, so you have a combination of that and then this extremely sophisticated compositional technique, and they, they're blended seamlessly together. And what you're saying is that nowadays this is no longer possible. The, the language of uh, savant music has become so extremely distant from the vernacular music, the popular music, that seems to be informing the liturgical music of today, that there's no longer any possibility of those two things meeting. So, but how did, how did that happen historically? Well, um, there is a, a, a big uh, a change uh, at the period of Vatican II. In France, I, I explain in France because I, I don't know the situations uh, exactly outside France, but in France, uh, at the period of Vatican II, uh, the possibility of singing uh, new songs in French uh, inspired by other musical styles, and especially pop music or um, uh, gospel or, or uh, even folk uh, American music uh, be, uh, began. And so um, at that time, uh, some organists and some musicians like Duruflet or even Mission or Langlais and others, had, uh, they hoped that they could write a new music um, for uh, the French uh, liturgy, which could be in French and inspired by the plainchants or inspired by the modality and a part of what is the modality of French music. Uh, but um, the, uh, well, the, the church decided not to build this new repertoire uh, and to let very different musicians and type of musicians write new proposals for this new music. And most part of this was made by people who couldn't compose any uh, interesting music, to be honest. Um, so that it was a new uh, way to include um, uh, well, this, uh, I, can, I, I, I don't know how to name this music, but um, it's really sort of bad sort of pop music, but even pop music is not a good term. Um, and uh, well, it, it uh, began to uh, be the sort of common uh, cultural uh, um, songs known by, by people uh, in the church. Um, so um, in French, uh, in, in France, this situation tried to, to be uh, corrected by people when, for example, adapting in French uh, Lutheran chorals. Uh, as they made, for example, in Saint-Séverin in Paris or something like that. But um, most of the music uh, composed for after Vatican II was based on very low uh, musical and artistic level. Um, and uh, so the connection can, well, it, it goes on maybe with some organists composing about plaintions, but uh, well, even for me, I, I you know, uh, I wanted really to invent for the organ or outside of the organ a music based on other source of inspiration. And for me, I, I felt no requirement to imagine a music linked with anything in the liturgy. Uh, so I improvise in liturgy, but the music I invent, well, as poetic sources, uh, acoustic sources, uh, well, and spiritual sources sometimes, uh, but they are not linked with any musical material that could be used in liturgy. 
Well, it, it could also be that the church as an institution is not something that necessarily is going to encourage artistic innovation, although it has been at various points in history, but uh, that doesn't seem to be the case now, unfortunately. Well, la Trinité is maybe an exception, in fact, in history. <laughs> uh, so that the Messian situation is something special, and we can't say that Messian has been encouraged by the Church. He has been acknowledged as a great musician later in his life by the Church. But, uh, in fact, he has his own very independent way of uh, uh, answering or responding to the requirements of the Church. Uh, so it was, uh, I think, so as a, as an well, extraterrestrial in this time. Well, let's talk about that because you you also happen to be one of the foremost experts on Messian, and uh, you've written a, a very uh, comprehensive volume on Messian, which came out, I believe, when what year was it? Twenty uh, uh, um, uh, yeah. So uh, how did somebody like Messiaen, who is considered a radical experimental composer, uh, end up as the organist in uh, the Sainte Trinité in Paris? How, how does a, a, a sort of outsider figure like that, and he was very much uh, considered to be an outsider in the, in the Paris Conservatory also when he was a teacher there, how did he end um, up with a position like this? Well, um, the, the question of his appointment is now quite well known. Um, it's maybe something a bit more, uh, a bit too much an anticipation to see Messiaen as an extraterrestrial in the conservatoire. He was a successful student at the conservatoire, and um, a very successful one. Original maybe, but also successful. And he was appointed at La Trinité when he was only 23. Uh, he, he, he had his first prize in organ the year before, and the young, uh, uh, the, the his teacher Dupré um, um, advised so that he could be uh, a deputy organist at La Trinité, but Dupré uh, knew that the titular organist was very old and maybe Messiaen could succeed him just after. And this is what happened. And we have uh, different letters of important people from the organ world in France at that time, like Vidor, like Tournemire, uh, like Maurice Emmanuel also, they wrote letters to the curé of La Trinité, the dean of La Trinité, explaining, uh, well, you have to choose young, the young Messian. And this young Messian has already uh, been known in the organ world, but also in the concert hall, because a few months before, there was a premiere of um, Les Offrandes Oubliées in Paris. It was in the spring 1931, and in September 1931, he was promoted at uh, La Trinité. And um, in fact, uh, I think that Messiaen was uh, seen as uh, a real hope for uh, organ music and also a hope for Catholic music in the concerto. And you can imagine in Paris that at the beginning of the 30s, this spiritual or Catholic music in the concerto was not uh, a usual way. Uh, you know, it's so far from group decis and other neoclassicism, neo-bar, or, uh, or pure music, that the organ world, I think, was very proud of this young Messian and saw him as a new hope for their way of looking uh, at music. 
So explain how you first encountered Messiaen's music, and and because I, I understand that you have a uh, you're very you're very close to Messiaen, and you've you've undertaken a, an enormous amount of research. So what is the attraction for you to this particular composer? Uh, well, it's a long story, and it's not a, only only a story of attraction. In fact, uh, there has been repulsions of of also. Um, or oh, uh, I think the first experience was, uh, as many people, uh, with the apparition de l'Église éternelle. I think I was 14 in an organ concert. I went, I, I just began the organ at that time. And so, uh, well, of course, when you listening to the apparition, you can't forget this music, I see, I can say. Um, I remember the person presenting the concert, explaining that, uh, well, you will you will uh, listen to the big door of the paradise opening and then closing. Uh, and I could imagine maybe like a sort of enormous door, like a bank, you know, uh, opening and closing. Uh, and well, it was of course a great shock. Um, I played my first piece by Messiaen de Organ, which was Les Bergers, a quite easy piece from La Nativité, but I didn't understand anything about it at all. Uh, I find it bizarre, but quite interesting. And uh, I bought Technique de mon langage musical, Technique of a musical language, when I was 17, and I wrote it with great passion. And then I went outside of it. Maybe we can talk about this for a second. How, how do you actually feel about that book? And we should start by saying that Technique de mon langage musical is a book that Messiaen wrote in which he attempts to lay out the foundations of how he composes. So he talks about, and, and he's very methodical about it. And it's a very unusual document because there aren't very many composers who have attempted to produce a single volume that explains how they use rhythms, how they use chords, how they use scales, how it all fits together, uh, and so on. So, And actually, other composers have been very uh, almost contemptuous or dismissive of that particular book. I remember that uh, there's an interview with Luciano Berrio where he said the book is completely embarrassing starting from the title. But <laughs> nevertheless, uh, it remains a, a book that is widely read and studied, particularly yeah. in France, but also in, in, in many other countries as well. So how do you feel about that particular document? Well, we, we could make a complete podcast about this question. Um, <laughs> I, in fact, I, I spent years uh, with my two colleagues, Yves Balmer and Chris Murray, to write, um, uh, well, a new way of uh, reading uh, technique language musical. In, so we explain it in, in our book. And, um, well, I can say, of course, when I read the, this text for the first time, I didn't understand it really. And now I can say maybe that after working years and years on it, in fact, nobody could really understand what was in this book. And uh, we tried to uh, understand many of enigmas which are in this strange book. Uh, and, well, I will try to sum up some up, sum up of them. Um, the first, maybe, let's begin with the title. Um, in Messiaen Diaries uh, from the 40s, we see that, in fact, for him, the title, the original title, he thought, was Traité, and it was a Traité de Composition. Composition treaties. And this is strange because at the first line, line of the introduction, he says, this is not a treatise of composition. But in fact, in his mind, in his project, this is a treatise of composition. 
This is a pedagogical way to explain how to compose with new methods that he had, that he discovered, and that he want people to show. But do you think he wanted composition students to use these particular materials, or, or was this it... This is written in the introduction in a sort of modest way to explain that, well, if maybe some young people could be interested, maybe they will go beyond and, and go further with these solutions I propose, it's like that. But this is a modest way to say that at that time, at, the, at that time in the 40s, it was published in 44, but in, in fact, it was finished in 42. Um, Messian had the hope that it could be a, a new proposal to compose with methods he explained in this book. Uh, and in his diary, he's writing, uh, uh, showing a treaty to uh, this or that publisher and finds a more personal title. And maybe it's an answer to a requirement from someone or maybe from publisher to transform the title from Traité de Composition to Technique of My Musical Language. Hmm. Uh, and so now we see this as a sort of self-affirmation of a young composer in a sort of uh, um, uh, ex exhibitionist way. Um, but maybe it's uh, not... Uh, completely correct way to read this book. And uh, this is one of the first enigma. Other enigmas are quite huge. Um, well, I can begin with a, just a way to enter a detail. This book is full of musical examples and is, few, is full of lists of musical examples. For example, there is a big list of chords and chord formulas. There is also a quite big list of melody, melody melodic themes uh, with very few comments about them. And uh, what are the functions of this list? Why, why are they here in, that, in this book? And um, why, what is the main topic of this book also? It begins with some chapters about the wisdom. Uh, and of course, it's a sort of uh, affirmation, self-affirmation of his originality. But maybe the real beginning of the treatise is not the chapter one, but the chapter eight. And the chapter eight is about melody. And is in this chapter, Messian shows how you can build your melodies from transforming things you like in the repertoire. This is a famous Boris Goudounov motif when he used four or five notes taking from the beginning of Boris Goudunov and is writing a motif inspired by this um, uh, when he is using the same contours, the same nubes, and is transforming the intervals and the rhythms into his own language. And what we showed in our book is that this quite well-known example is the first basis of Messian's method of composition he wants to show in this book. This is what we call a borrowing technique, but it's a, a word used by Messian. And this borrowing technique can exist in melodic parameter, in harmony, and also in rhythm. 
So that these treaties is a sort of treaties of borrowing and transformation of material so that you can find with your, what Mr. call is deforming prism, a way to build your own music. So that, in fact, his musical language is a, a great diversity of tools of transformation of music so that he can build his own music. Right. So I can say that, of course, it took years to now read this book, and I now can't read this book as maybe other people read it. Uh, and, uh, well, uh, we could explore and go chapters and chapters, uh, uh, one after the other, to explain or explore these things. But it's, uh, well, the first steps of the uh, new reading of this book we propose in our research and we it's a sort of new key to enter into into Messian's uh, compositional process okay so a couple of things about that and this will actually connect to your own uh, work as a composer so you mentioned that that Messian was preoccupied with taking materials taking existing materials from other composers and uh, and using them as models upon which you could then invent new things uh, in your own language. And, well, this also relates to the title of the book, which is Le Modèle et l'Invention, the model and, yeah. and invention. So, uh, but this reminds me also of, of Stravinsky's approach throughout his entire life, which was uh, to take a, a pre-existing model of some kind, and it might be, uh, it might be um, uh, sort of traditional folk tunes from Russia, or it might be uh, Pergolesi, or it might be uh, or Webern, or whatever. It was different things, obviously, throughout the, the span of his, of his career. Uh, and so this idea of uh, starting with a, a model and then building something entirely personal, uh, starting from that, seems to come into contradiction for some people in the sense that the the primary ethos of contemporary music since the post-war has been the development of increasingly individual and personal, perhaps even hermetic, musical languages in which the composer invents everything ex nihilo from scratch. Mm -hmm. So uh, do you see a, a possible continuation of this idea of starting with a model in the contemporary musical landscape? Well, of course. In fact, you know, you can believe composers when you speak, or you can not believe them and try to understand how they work really. So that um, even when you are, uh, you have a discourse about avant-garde or tabula rasa, um, how you can, how can you build something, uh, and how can you build music uh, without knowing anything about music before you? It's a complex question. And uh, um, but um, models, the question of, of models is uh, also a way to explain that composing music from uh, from nothing is uh, just a thing that uh, you can make people dream of, but you can do. Um, through that, um, well, many situations uh, in contemporary music uh, are linked with the fact that you know other pieces. Um, so that this question of how you can make your knowledge of music and your love of other music, your own music, 
is maybe a central question of composition at any time. Um, through that, uh, of course, you can present your analytical discourse without evoking any other piece around you. But, well, when we took time with sketches, when we took time to enter not only into public discourses of composers, but also private ones, we discover how all the composers we admire are deeply linked with their knowledge of other music and with, with their love of other music. Uh, so, in fact, um, um, maybe the aesthetic of amnesia has had some success, but maybe the one who spoke about amnesia who were not the one that used it at most, um, if it makes sense. Um, yes, yeah. So, in fact, we should enter into details, and, and uh, it, it's a, it's an enormous question. It's it's a major question of today, also. Um, though that uh, some composers have uh, built theoretical discourse, public discourses about well, uh, evacuating everything of references about other music, but uh, we all know that these big composers were really linked and deeply linked with other pieces, so that in fact they didn't want to explain and they maybe didn't want to understand themselves sometimes what sort of link they built between these other pieces and their own music, because well, it was a difficult situation at the time to explain publicly these sort of links, and Messiaen had this problem, because um, I can say maybe in '44 it was still possible to imagine that a new method of composition could be built on drawings, but even five years after, it was it became impossible. So that uh, the, well, the musical, musical world changed so fast at that time uh, that um, well, the, the hope that Messiaen could have to build a new method of composition on borrowing became very quickly totally old-fashioned and impossible to um, publicly explain um, through that easborrowing technique became uh, mostly secret and not really explained in the years after. That's why uh, we had to write a book about this question. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it was, the case, it was the case for certain composers, but then you also have figures like Dutier, for example, who were, who were less radical in their approach and who did not claim uh, any sort of uh, amnesia and that were very obviously engaged with older music. Uh, and, uh, you know, th there's a, a kind of a, uh, what would you say, an archetypal uh, difference, perhaps, between someone like Boulez at the time in the, in the, in the post-war years who declared that you needed to burn right. down the opera houses I mean, and so on. I, I didn't mention Boulez, but of, of course I was thinking of him. Yes, so of course. His yeah. and was speaking of amnesia, but Bou was much more informed about every music around him, much more curious about music around him, before him, uh, uh, than Boulez. Uh, well, he didn't live isolated of other music uh, at, at all. Uh, it's so obvious. And when now we've got some musicolo musicological uh, studies about his way to transform 
his um, uh, his music like the sonatina or the first sonata when he tried to console every Messian and Jolivet references in this piece. So he cut he, he cut and bars uh, that were too uh, linked with the past, so that he could hide his linked with and transform music so that we can't see the linked with uh, the French modernity of his time. Um, but uh, it's really part of his of his musical roots, uh, and uh, uh, of course, um, well, making link with uh, um, extreme Oriental or, or uh, non-European music uh, was also a way to change models. But it was still very important models, uh, so that well, um, we have to make a big difference between the uh, public discourses and the private practices, the concrete practices of the composer. Well, let's let's talk about Thomas Lacotte, the composer. <laughs> and since we are on the topic of, of composition and, uh, and specifically about what you're working on at the moment. So obviously, in addition to your work as an organist, you have now a very impressive catalog of, of instrumental pieces. And I'd, I wonder if you could talk about the, the piece that you're currently writing, for the Présence Festival in Paris. Well, I suppose you're not writing it anymore since it's, it, no. it will be premiered very, very shortly. But the piece it's... that you recently finished. Can you tell <laughs> us a little bit about this? Well, this is a piece for two French horns on organ. Uh, and I will play for, uh, this piece uh, at the organ, which is an exception, in fact, in my, in my work. And um, so this... Uh, uh, instrumental formation, two French horns and organ. It may be one of the first pieces for this strange uh, wedding of two French horns and an organ. Uh, and in fact, it's a suggestion made by George Benjamin, uh, because this festival presence in Radio France is dedicated to George's uh, 60th birthday. And um, he had the idea to put together in a concert a duet uh, by Gérard Griset for two horns called Accord Perdu, and uh, Organ Works, so uh, The Messe de la Pentecôte by Messian, on my four-end piece, The Fifth Hammer, that he, he likes quite much. And so he had the idea to link everything uh, together with this new piece for organ and two French horns. Um, and, uh, well, so I tried to imagine some things uh, with this. Um, with also a concrete situation in Radio France, especially with an organ in the concert hall, with not a very big acoustic, but very sort of dry acoustic. And, um, well, I had the experience before to write two other pieces with organ. I mean, a piece for saxophone, sopra, uh, soprano saxophone on organ, and also a piece for percussion on organ. So I think I could build a third part of this cycle um, as a new proposition. And, um, well, I can say, uh, if I want to explain a bit of the piece, I had to explain what could have been the very first ideas, the basic ones, and what is the nature of these ideas from which I built uh, my music. Um, I can say it's a situation of interaction of the timbers. I can say, uh, especially points of meeting between the different timbers, um, when can uh, or at which condition a French horn can sound like an organ, or at which condition the organ can sound 
like a French horn. Uh, what is what are the different points of illusion that I can build uh, at which condition um, these timbers could be uh, really not only blend but also really um, this point of connection between them. And uh, I can say for me this is a great motivation to find these moments or, the, or these points um, because maybe they are they can be for me um, a part of what is uh, the magic when you listen to music. I can say you have three people, you can see them when you're in concert hall, or you can imagine them when you listen to the piece. And, um, well, how can I can make that you don't know where it comes from or how many there are? And this moment of acoustic illusion or acoustic I can say magic or alchemy are sometimes or are usually the first musical ideas I would like to base my music from. Okay, and so obviously one of the uh, most challenging aspects of, of composition generally is not not so much the material itself or the the generative idea of the piece, but how you pr project that idea through time. And lots of every every composer, of course, has a different approach to to working with that. Uh, but how do you how do you work uh, in terms of organizing the form of a piece? Is it something that emerges organically, or do you do you plan out an entire piece before you start writing? Well, as you can imagine, if the first ideas are, I can say, uh, phenomenons or phenomenas, they are uh, moments of music. They are local, uh, but uh, they can also have their own time. I can say um, the time necessary to produce this point of meeting these sort of illusions is that this, is, this phenomenon um, requires their own time, a certain amount of time, I can say, so that we can listen to them. And maybe this is a first uh, encounter with a question of time and form. And so I really wanted, or I would like to articulate this different type of uh, acoustic interactions into uh, something that can go on and being um, uh, built maybe uh, as something which has a sort of narrativity, a sort of dramatical uh, building. And um, uh, so the form can be uh, built from outside. So there's a kind it's of a, an, an external model or idea, right. a narrative the, idea. The time can be planned from outside, from the generality. Uh, maybe the time can infuse from the phenomenon themselves. So that, in fact, I can say when I listen and imagine uh, these sounds, uh, for me, in my head, they take a certain amount of time or they need a certain amount of continuity or discontinuity to be built uh, together. So it's, um, you can imagine, so it's quite uh, far from, I can say, formalism or functionalism, but uh, it's also uh, quite linked with uh, the question of, uh, um, well, uh, non-measured time, I can say not, uh, chronological or chronometrical time, but uh, a time that can be 
built from listening, from having the sound with me when I am the organ, and um, well, imagine directions also, which is another question of special, especially this piece, because the question of sort of contus firmus or lines, inner lines, are very important uh, in this piece. Okay, so let's t let's talk about that because your music has a very uh, prominent and important melodic dimension to it. But you also seem to be, and this is obviously my perspective, and you can tell me what you think, but it seems to me that you're also very in engaged with the, the physical material qualities of sound. So in, in a certain sense, there's, you could make a connection with, with the spectralists in the sense that you, you are very involved in, in the sort of molding of physical, uh, physical uh, sonic uh, materials. But one thing that the spectralists tend not to engage with as much is the melodic dimension. And now that's a generalization, and obviously there are exceptions to that. But the, the essential uh, dimension that you see in a lot of uh, music from those composers tends to be very vertical in nature. And I don't get that from yours. It seems very uh, much melodic and, and horizontal, but also with this focus on, on plastic sonority. Well, um... Um, I can say I, I even dream now maybe to be more horizontal in the future uh, so that uh, I hope I could be um, um, more linked with this dimension uh, so this piece, this new piece uh, with two horns uh, is, a, is, a, is a step further in this uh, dimension um, you know it's also a question of not uh, um, general conception or concepts are we, we seems to speak about, but a very genetic and practical question, which is what do you begin with when you compose? Do you begin with something which is a chord or something which is a line? And uh, it's a very concrete way. And in this piece, I began uh, much more than in other pieces with lines, with sort of contus firmus written before, and then, well, I composed around these lines. Um, well, uh, of course, uh, spectralism is a very important uh, uh, thing for my formation, and I was a pupil of Michael Levinas, which may be, in fact, my main teacher, my main master in the conservatory studies I had. But, you know, I, I didn't have any composition teacher especially. But he was my analysis teacher and was very important in, in this, uh, in my way. Um, but, uh, well, I think maybe one of the major things that spectralism uh, didn't um, uh, cope with, and it's a bit provocative, is the sound, but the sound as it appears, and not the sound in a structural way or, or conceptual way. I can say the timber as it is expressed by the instruments. As you know, well, spectralists use frequencies, but these frequencies can be played by pure timbers, but they have to be played by instruments that have their own timbers. But, well, it's, uh, it's a concession they have to do so that their uh, worlds can be expressed by real and physical instruments. And in a way, my way of speaking about sounds is not sound as a concept or as something you can analyze. And I don't use a scientific or acoustic analysis of the sound at all, but as something that appears um, 
uh, as a phenomenon, have the diversity of quality of sounds. Of course, you can have on an organ, for example, with orchestrations, with like that, and how I can use them as sound with their own timbers. Uh, so that um, if there is a melodic di dimension in, in my music, um, it's uh, not melody uh, thought as uh, something you can write on a score, but it's a way to build a continuous discourse with one timber. I can say this thing, I, I, I can say the basic uh, uh, thing is uh, playing a scale at the organ with a special stop. You see, it's a way to, in fact, develop a timber into a, a register. And this is the beginning of what could be a melody, what should be a melody, maybe, for me, if you see what I mean. So that in this piece, for example, the two horns are playing, in fact, what horns play in orchestral music very often, which is this central lines, maybe quite low, this sort of Nebenstimme, mm -hmm. into the texture, and they build their continuity, the continuity of their own timber with building these lines. Um, and, uh, well, this is a sort of, uh, yes, uh, Nebenstimme, resonance line, cantus firmus, something like that, uh, which give also this living continuity of the song that the organ has, of course, because he can also play long notes, but with the human and physical and, uh, uh, I can say, uh, uh, well, living sounds of the French horns with the crescendos and crescendos and like that, that the organ can't really do uh, himself. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about this. This is very interesting. So you're, you're, from what I understand, with the analogy of playing a scale on an organ in order to demonstrate the sound of a particular stop, yeah. uh, you're, you seem to be saying that in order for a, a timbre to be appreciated properly, it has to, it has to move. In other words, it, it cannot be <laughs> simply a static thing, but it has to be something that, 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 that expands, that, that moves, that shows uh, what it can do in different registers. Yeah. Um... Well, in, in, at the organ, you have this, I think, uh, this possibility, which is not so explored at our time, to um, deal with the sound and with the pitch also, and not to oppose these two questions. Well, uh, one of my famous colleagues um, told me once that for him, the pitch was a sort of mask of the sound. So that if you want to tweet and listen and use the sound of the timber for himself from this physicality, you have to avoid the pitch and eliminate the pitch. Uh, at the organ, you can't, in fact. You have got this big palette of different types of timber of sounds, but many, not all, but many of these timbers, of the very nice and, and, and rich timbers, uh, they have a distinct pitch. So that, in fact, if you want to make these timbers uh, have an evolution, uh, be built together, be connected, be transformed, you have to have a pitch language. You have to think about harmony, I can say. But harmony with the nature of the timber 
and not as an abstract way to build pitch together on a musical score. And maybe this is, I can say, one of the originality I can explain of what uh, the organ can say in the contemporary world now with this question of sound, pitch, and harmony are, well, quite problematic. And you know many things about this question, Samuel. Um, so, um, in fact, yes, I can say the organ can uh, build this connection, this interaction between these different problems of composition today in a quite special way, maybe original way. And, well, this is a, one of the things I try to find on the organ or with the organ or from the organ so that I can use the materiality of the sound but also use the, prob the question of pitch and harmony to make these sounds um, live, develop itself, and being built in a discourse and in a form. I see, yeah. Well, it seems to me that this connects to composers such as Edgar Varese, for example, for whom yeah. you, you cannot have a, a sort of an abstract harmony written on paper and have that mean anything. It has to be uh, this particular uh, frequency or pitch played on this instrument in this register at this particular yeah. dynamic level and uh, all of these different components exactly. come into but, you, but you, cannot, you cannot abstract it out and just speak of harmony independently of the instrument that will be playing it and the dynamic and all of these things. Yeah, and you, and you, see, you see the same thing also in, in Stravinsky but certainly also yeah. in, in, uh, in Morton Feldman who I think yeah. felt exactly the same way. This is three very important people for, for me, uh, I, I'm sure of it, yes, definitely. Um, maybe Varese was the first one important in this path. Uh, really, when I was 22, 23, I found in Varese something really special that I imagine it could be used as the organ and it could, well, uh, be a motivation to invent music, really. Something that, well, make you... Uh, waking up early and uh, looking for it uh, during the old the whole day, and um, so yes, I, I, I'm sure about it. And of course, the question of uh, the mystery of Varese was also a huge motivation. So that you know, if I knew everything about the composer, well, uh, why going on? <laughs> but with Varese, there is so many enigmas uh, that it's a motivation to go on and to go further. Um, and Stravinsky also, yes, the question of the materiality, uh, this sonic quality, this instrumental quality of Stravinsky, may, well, for me, it was, of course, the symphonies of wind instruments. That yes. was this shock about this question, uh, how I can hear the harmony, the, the harmony of the final choral linked with this timber, how this is of such important blend between the real quality, the flesh of the sound of this instrument and the harmony itself. And Feldman is a much more recent um, interest for me, really much more. You know, in Paris Conservatoire, you can spend all your life, uh, all your student life without uh, being told about Martin Feldman. And it was the case. Uh, and so I discovered it years after, and I discovered his writings even more recently. And of course, it, had been, it has been a great passion and a great enthusiasm to find that he faced the question I looked uh, at uh, in a so brilliant, brilliant way. Uh, so I, I gained much inspiration from 
his writings, of course. Well, I'm very happy to hear that because, as as you say, and be, I also went to the Paris Conservatory, and it's true, you did not, you didn't hear his name, and I I find that unfortunate. I don't quite understand why it is, but there are certain names. Obviously, every place has its cultural specificities, and not every composer is played in every country, but yeah. but there does seem to be a bit of a uh, a blank spot as far as Feldman goes in France. Um, for me, he was always an incredibly important composer, uh, but uh, but there there is a sort of uh, American um, what would you say tradition of 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 sort of outsider composers such as Feldman, such as uh, Charles Ives, Carl Ruggles, Ruth Crawford Seeger. There's a long list. Henry Cowell, uh, who didn't really belong to the uh, what you might call the the um, hmm. An, an academic approach to composition, but they were they were they were they were they were basically inventing their own methods and very independently from what was being done in in Europe, and so uh, you don't actually hear those composers mentioned all that often in France. Perhaps in the UK, maybe in in Germany, you hear them more often. Yes, uh, well, there are many many composers we don't know in Paris. I can say from America and from so many other traditions, those that uh, well. If you leave the conservatoire with a certain amount of curiosity, you still have many, many discoveries to do. And this is what I did at that time. And now as a professor in Paris Conservatoire, I try to correct these things. I mean, to fill in the gaps uh, that were uh, uh, made when I was a student and, and maybe to have some bit wider uh, exposition of my students to different type of music. So that I can hope that from these new um, doors open, they could write something different, in fact, and something personal from these connections they will make. Um, so, um, well, we are in a way very proud of the, our French tradition and, and the, the question, well, the image of modernity we've built. Uh, with uh, this lineage, with Boulez, uh, of course, spectral music, of course, Ligeti is very important for us and, and many other things, but we still have to enlarge uh, our perspectives. And uh, American music is still an enigma for many, many French composers. And I can't say I, I, I've identified all the important uh, things I could uh, uh get from the knowledge of this music yet it's still to explore for me also absolutely but i would i would say also for certainly for americans because it's not mm-hmm. necessarily all that well known uh in the usa either here's an extract from uchronie 1 for two pianos which was written in 2018 and which was a commission for the messian festival in france
now that we're talking also about your activities as a teacher, I have a question, which is just uh, maybe you could explain how you managed to do all these things, because you write books, you are a composer, you're an organist, you're a professor at the Paris Conservatory. Uh, I can't imagine what your schedule must look like. How do you how do you manage to do all these different things? Well, I I, I do these different things in uh, well, um, you know I, I'm I compose quite slowly, and I don't compose many pieces uh, uh, in uh, in one year, uh, not at all, not at all. Um, I play organ concerts, but. You know, not this sort of uh, standard repertoire concerts when you can reproduce the same program and make uh, big tours. Uh, this is not my way of seeing what I can do in the organ. So um, I've, I try to build special special projects or special programs, uh, but uh, it's part of my year, and not, uh, you know, uh, every week. Um, and, uh, well, teaching is, is a, a demanding activity. Um, especially if you want to be uh, enthusiast uh, and to have some things to, to communicate. Um, but, uh, well, I don't know what the future will give. If I want to still uh, uh, have new and big uh, compositional projects, maybe I will have to do other things a bit less. <laughs> so it's, it's a balance that you still have to reinvent year after year when you project one year, two years, three years after, you have to imagine how you can make these different activities at their best in special moments. But creation is, of course, the only important thing, and imagination. Also. Absolutely. What What are the projects that you would that you that you dream of doing in, as a composer? What are the the, the projects that you uh, would like to do uh, in the future? Well, now I can't wait to come back to voice and to text. Uh, so it's now time for me to, to uh, well, go further in this direction, which I'm passionate about. Um, and though that, well, I've got uh, some texts uh, on my desk just near me, though that I, well, now I'm meditating on them and I really would like to find a way uh, to uh, make them into music and the question of so also of scenic uh, questions of chamber opera is something that is really well make me uh, waking up during nights so um, this is obviously the thing i would like to to face uh, now uh, i've spoken a lot about the question of timber listening and timber uh, and instrumental question but the question of vocality of uh, dramatical situations um, of um, uh, imaginary and diversity of imaginary uh, is for me something quite uh, appealing for the future. Well, wonderful. Well, we'll be looking forward to a, a chamber opera from you. That would be that would be extraordinary to hear. Um, and of course, I can understand that if you were to embark on such a project, it would it would be a, a very long term thing. It takes it takes a long time to write an opera. So. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Um, well, thank you very, very much for taking the time out from your busy, uh, your busy life to, uh, to talk with me and, uh, with, and with my listeners. And uh, where can people hear your music? Um, well, there are some YouTube things. Uh, 
for example, some pieces recorded at La Trinité or in Bourges Cathedral when I was organist before. Uh, I've got uh, SoundCloud also with some things, uh, some improvisations also, uh, as well as some composition. Um, so maybe this is the two main sources. And there is a CD uh, that you can find on iTunes, iTunes Spotify, and other called The Fifth Hammer in English, which was it, uh, the title of one of my pieces. It's a CD recorded at La Trinité with pieces for organ, organ and saxophone, organ for hands, and some improvisations too. Okay, fantastic. So we will put the links in the podcast and people can go and hear those. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, apologize for my English, which is not perfect, but uh, I tried to do it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>